in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. And today we returned our series in Ezra Nehemiah called Return, Rebuild, and Renew. And pick up the story where we left off several weeks ago. And so today I'll read from Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4, down through the end of the chapter. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments... Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are Unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Gracious Father, I pray today that we would humble ourselves before your word, that we'd be shaped by it, that as we gather before this ancient text, that we would know that we stand before a book that has stood the test of time for thousands of years and over the course of time has changed countless lives Men and women simply picking it up and reading it. And so, Father, I pray today we would understand what a privilege we have to read your word, to study it together as the body of Christ, to learn from it and apply it to our lives, knowing that it's powerful and it does not return to you void. So, Lord, we give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's uh, an old story uh, called The Emperor's New Clothes, uh, written by a Danish author known as Hans Christian Andersen in the 1800s. And um, this book revolves around uh, this emperor who was excessively concerned with his appearance and what he wore, his clothes, and things of that nature. Well, two swindlers came into town, uh, weavers, uh, who claimed to possess a magic fabric that is invisible to anyone who is foolish or unfit for their position. And so uh, the swindlers convince uh, the emperor to commission a suit to be made for him of this extraordinary fabric. And so they set out to, uh, they convince the the emperor to do this, and so they set out to uh, make this wardrobe for him, except, of course, Uh, it's all fake. They really don't have any material at all. There's nothing magical about it. And yet they were able to convince the emperor and his ministers that the suit is real, describing its exquisite features and patterns. 
Well, the emperor uh, decides to put on this invisible, these invisible clothes that he thinks that people can see, and he begins to parade through his city. And uh, everybody there uh, was afraid to state the obvious uh, because they didn't want to be considered foolish or unfit for their position, and so everybody kept quiet about the reality that he didn't, He was naked, except for one kid who pointed out and said, the emperor has no clothes. And then it became obvious to everyone, the pretense. Well, it's a silly story, but the reality is it tells us something, I think, about ourselves, that we have a tendency sometimes to believe a falsehood out of uh, uh, our our self-interest and uh, our desire to avoid social embarrassment. Everybody, it was obvious to everybody what was going on, but everybody was afraid to say anything and to speak up. And what that meant was they ended up preserving a falsehood, a lie motivated by their own desire to stay in the tribe and to maintain their standing in the community. I believe all of us, as communities and individuals, we have emperors with no clothes. Uh, Those spiritual, emotional, mental, physical areas in our lives where we know we struggle, and perhaps uh, lies in ruins, but we are afraid to say anything about it, uh, and so it stays that way. Israel had some emperors with no clothes on. Their rebellion against God had brought catastrophic ruin to them, And uh, for a period of time, that stung. They noticed, say, this is bad. This is a reproach to the God that we serve. And yet, over the course of time, they began to get accustomed to the destruction and the ruin around them. The truth is, we learn to live with the destruction. We learn to really uh, grow comfortable with the ruin around us, just as Israel did. Their wall was broken down. Nebuchadnezzar had come in. He had destroyed everything. The wall was broken down. They had made some progress. That's what Ezra was about. They had made some progress. They rebuilt the temple, and yet the wall still remained in ruin. So today we ask this question, how will you respond when the wall is broken down. How will you respond to the walls broken down around you, whether on a national level, on a church level, or just on a personal level, things in your life that are not as they should be? That's what we're going to work through today. That's what I believe uh, Nehemiah helps us to understand. Number one, admit reality. Admit reality. Now, as you know, uh, if you remember from our, as we went through Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, originally just one book, Okay, kind of Act 1, Act 2, but originally just one book. The uh, Babylonians had come in, and they had destroyed everything because of their rebellion and wickedness against God, and they destroy the temple, they destroy the wall, everything really about the city, bring people out of that city into exile for many years, and uh, and there's a remnant, though, uh, that stays there. But decades pass, finally the Persians gain power, they're a little bit more tolerant of the religious people in their kingdom, And so uh, they allow a lot of people to go back to their homeland, not just even the Israelites, but others as well, to rebuild their sacred structures all by God's sovereign design. So if you'll remember from Ezra, the folks go back. Uh, they begin to rebuild, they get the altar built, uh, they get the foundation of the temple built. Everybody's celebrating, everybody's having a good time, except for those that weren't, right? There, there was a group that was weeping. It says you could not tell the difference between the shouts of joy and really the shouts of mourning from the people of God because some remembered the former temple and the way 
it looked. Well, they immediately began to face opposition, so the work stopped. Uh, they stopped building uh, the temple, and it stayed that way for many years before God raised up Haggai, Zechariah, prophets who stood before the people and who proclaimed the word of God and called people back to consider their ways and to return to the Lord and to his work. And so they did. But as we ended Ezra, we saw that there's really an anticlimactic finish. Uh, Ezra chapters 9 and 10, you've got this intermarriage situation going on. Uh, Ezra uh, counsels them to uh, divorce their foreign wives. And we, we talked about the complexity of that and what all that looked like. But no matter what you believe about all that, as you get to the end of the book, uh, notice in verse 18 through the end, it's just a list of those who are guilty of intermarriage. Okay, that, that's just how the book ends. Now, that is an anticlimactic way to end a book. So as Nehemiah uh, sets onto, steps onto the stage, the curtains opens, he steps onto the stage, renewal is still not accomplished. Restoration is still not accomplished. So as Nehemiah opens, it says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, that's November and December, in the 20th year, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah and with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So he's inquiring about uh, the home city of his ancestors. He wants to learn more about Jerusalem. And so they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and in great trouble and distress. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days and I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah inquires about the city. Once he hears the gloomy report on the state of the city, he sits down and he weeps for days and nights mourning the city. His uh, mourning, I believe, is a, an admission of the disgrace that the city lay in. But a lot of people had grown fine with that. I mean, initially, I'm sure it stung. Everything's torn down. People are exiled. But a, as the years went on, uh, people just learned to live in it. Now, you could walk up to anybody who's living in Jerusalem and say, is the wall torn down? Anybody could look out and see that the wall is torn down. But were they grieving over it? Were they mourning over it? Were they stirred to take action for it? Nehemiah didn't just recognize that the wall had been torn down. He recognized that this was a disgrace before God. It actually uses that word. Your people are in great trouble and disgrace, meaning shame, meaning a reproach upon God. There are walls broken down today on a national level, on the church level, and on a personal level, there are walls around us, things uh, that we have just learned to live with that are not as they should be. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment, uh, this is uh, over 140 years after Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed everything, okay? This is 90 years after, 90 years after Cyrus issued the decree for the people to go back and restore the city and rebuild the temple, this is 30 years after construction started on I-35, okay? <laughs> and I also have a cowboy's joke, but I'm not going to tell that one, okay? 
Um, so th- this is a long time, right? This is a long time for this to be going on. Um, and the people knew the reality that it was torn down. But, you know, kind of like maybe your house, kind of like maybe your workplace, kind of like the things that we see around us, we just grow comfortable with them the way they are. Nehemiah was not comfortable with the wall being down. Over in Galatians, I just want to read this for you. Galatians chapter 5, as we think about this on a spiritual level, we've got areas in our lives that, uh, if we were just honest with ourselves, if we, if we admitted reality, they're unpleasing to God. Uh, we, we might be able to point and say, hey, I've got this behavior, I've got this habit, I've got this thing that I do, but do we really understand the magnitude or the weight of those actions that we take, those patterns in our life, those actions. In uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these are actions that probably if people were just honest and looked in the mirror, they'd say, we know that that wall is down. We know that that action is taking place in my life, but we grow accustomed to it and we learn to live in it. When instead we need to shift Our focus to verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is not just come natural to us. We have to, sanctification is a battle for us where we are relying upon the Holy Spirit rather than giving in to the works of the flesh. Nehemiah knew this on a national level. It's true on a church level. It's true on a personal level. What realities in your life do you need to admit? And just be honest with yourself. This behavior is not glorifying to God. I need to do something about this and just admit the reality. Number two, acknowledge truth. Acknowledge truth. Um, Nehemiah did not stay weeping and mourning. He went through a process of grief. He went through a process of mourning. And I'm sure even as we get to the end of chapter 1, even as we get to uh, chapter 2, there's still that sense of grief. There's still that sense of mourning that he's dealing with. But he allows himself time to process. He allows himself time to grieve and to mourn. But then, number two, he acknowledges truth. Notice this beautiful prayer. He says, Then I said, verse 5, Lord, the God of heaven... The great and awesome God. Now, interestingly enough, God of heaven is a popular phrase in the Zoroastrianism of his day. So he was taking a concept that they attributed to their God. And he said, no, you are the true God of heaven as Yahweh. But what makes his God distinct from the other gods? He said, you're a great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He is the God who keeps his covenant Kessid is the Hebrew word, steadfast love of God. So 90 years after the decree, Israel had moved on at various points. It's like, ah, we just can't do this anymore. And they moved on. You know who never moved on from them, though? God. God never moved on from his people. He remained faithful in steadfast love to his people 
Decade after decade after decade, he hasn't gone anywhere. God's loyal love and his faithfulness to his promise is the basis for Nehemiah saying this, verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. So he's basing all of this. He's basing his request on, God, I know who you are. I know that you are the God of steadfast love. Some of us, we not only know our own patterns, we know the character and the nature of people around us. Okay, we, of course, learn that in marriage where uh, sometimes you can predict what the other one's thinking and you can finish thoughts and you just know uh, what tendencies a person has the more you get to know them. And uh, the funny story that I like to tell is Jonah knows this about God and it ticked him off because he's like, I'm going to go out here and I'm going to preach to these Ninevites that I don't like and I know who you are. Your spirit's going to move. They're going to come to follow you, and you're going to be gracious to them and forgive them. And I don't want that to happen. And so he pouts. That's how Jonah ends. He's pouting because he knows who God is. Well, Nehemiah, on the positive end, he knows who God is. He knows God's tendency. He knows God's heart for sinners. He knows that, hey, even though we're going to confess to you, we've been wicked. He confessed, I have sinned. My father's family have sinned. My people have sinned. But I know who you are. And so what does he do? He begins to quote back to God his word. He says, this is what your word says. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says, this is what your word says, and I know who you are. You're a God who is love, the God who is steadfast in keeping his promises. So yes, admit the reality of your sin. Some places are very good about dragging out the reality of sin, but you've got, if you're going to be biblical, you've got to take that next step to know that you have sinned before a holy God, but before a God who is compassionate and one who is love. Church people sometimes do really good about that. Sometimes over the course of history, we haven't done real good about being that presence of love in people's life. And that's why a lot of times when people sin, their instinct is to run from church. They feel like, oh, I can't darken the door of a church. Or if I do, we have these phrases like, if I do, the whole church will implode upon me because of what I've done in my life. And we have phrases like a, a sweating like a sinner sitting in church, Right? We have those kinds of phrases, unfortunately, that spell out a reality over the course of church history where sinners did not feel welcome in the presence of the gathered body of Christ. I think, man, that ought to be the place that they want to be because they know that we are going to share the grace and love of God with them. We're going to speak truth. We're going to be honest with them, but we're going to share the grace and love of God. In fact, Jesus uh, Uh, Jesus was often criticized for things like this in Luke 15. It says that the Pharisees had this against him, that he welcomed sinners and eats with them. In Matthew 11, 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This was his reputation. Sinners were drawn to him. Yes, he called them to repentance, but he did so in such a way they were still drawn to sit at the table with him and have a meal with him. If we're going to be the fragrance of Christ, we have to 
have that posture about us. Number three, accept responsibility. So you admit, um, you admit reality. Okay, there, there's this, uh, these behaviors in my life, these sinful strongholds in my life, and you admit the reality of what that means, these walls that are torn down. Uh, you acknowledge truth. You acknowledge the truth of who God is, not just your sinfulness, but the truth of who God is and the truth of his word, the truth of his promise. Nehemiah does all of this. He admits reality. He acknowledges, God, this is who you are. This is who I am. But this is what your word says. If we return to you, then you will be gracious and kind to us. But then number three, you accept responsibility. Now I want to ask you something. And maybe you don't have time to do this right now. Um, But I want you to read chapter 1, maybe later on today. And I want you to show me anywhere in chapter 1 where God gives a direct revelation to Nehemiah. I don't think you'll be able to find it. The revelation is his word, okay? And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of times we we feel like or we seem to act like or we have this tendency that we're expecting God to do something really big to show us that we ought to do that thing that his Bible tells us to do, right? And so we're waiting for the heavens to be rendered open for God to come down the audible voice and say, Jared, you know, and go do this. That makes it very easy for us to know this is the will of God. But that's not what happens in Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah doesn't have the heavens rend open and for God to come down and speak to him audibly. What Nehemiah has is Deuteronomy 30. He has the word of God and so he reads the word and then he accepts responsibility for what he is supposed to do. Nehemiah takes ownership. If you look back up in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, Let your ear be attentive and your eye is open to hear my prayer. Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Notice, first of all, he sees these people in sin. What's he doing for them? He's praying for them. Your servants, Lord. I'm praying for them day and night. I'm grieving for them. I'm not angry with them right now. I'm just grieving for them. But then he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant, Moses. He accepts responsibility that he has a job to do. And I think it's fair to ask why. Why why does Nehemiah have suddenly this urge? There's a lot of people who had the same Bible he had. They practice the same religious rituals and and things like that that he practiced. But what is striking about Nehemiah, to me, is found down at the last part of his prayer. It says, They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. So he's exalting in who God is. Verse 11, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Why are we here? Because we delight in revering your name. The King James Version says it like this, as only the King James Version can. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. 
who desire to fear thy name, who take pleasure in revering God, who delight and it brings joy to them to hallow the name of God. And that's what made him sick on the one hand in grief. He's just sick that God's name is not being revered as it should be. They've allowed this travesty to go on for long enough. And notice their sin at this point. Their sin at this point, they're not running out, committing idolatry, anything like that. Their sin at this point that he's confessing is we're, we haven't taken action. It's sitting, it's lying in ruins. There's an act that needs to take place, as we're going to talk about in just a moment. I've always been struck by what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Paul, as he's thinking about the church in Rome, he's never been there. He knows some people there. As you see at the end of his letter to Romans, Romans chapter 16, he gives this long list of people that he knows, leaders that he knows in that church or who are there. But at the beginning, he's never been there, and yet he writes this, I am a debtor, Romans 1 verse 14, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. Some translations say, I owe you, some say I am obligated, and the debt that he owed was to come and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Nehemiah, he's, he's with King Artaxerxes. He could just say, man, it's terrible that that wall is torn down. I'm going to pray for you. No, he, he accepts responsibility that he's got something he needs to do in order to make the situation right. The Apostle Paul, he says there are lost people in Rome. And he could say, man, I feel terrible about that. I'm going to pray for them, and hopefully God will send someone to them. Well, what about you? No, Paul said, I am a debtor to the people in Rome. And so he goes to Rome bringing the gospel of Christ. Our question is, will you take ownership? Not only admit reality, not only acknowledge the truth of who God is, but will you take ownership of the mission of God? God probably won't rend the heavens and come down and speak to you audibly, but you have his word. And Jesus, before he ascended, every single time, every gospel records him saying something like, hey, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Luke, he says, go and preach the gospel and for repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. In Acts, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Mark 16, he says, go and preach the gospel to whole creation. The reason he says it in so many different ways is because he probably repeated it in the 40 days before he ascended. I would say that makes it pretty important. These are your marching orders. This is what you're to be about. Everybody has a different gift. Everybody has a different way that they can serve. But will you take ownership of the mission of God? Number four, act bravely. Number four, act bravely. So he finishes his confession, and the next day he still had to wake up and go to work. And so uh, he clocks in at 8 a.m. I don't know that for a fact, but he, he clocks in, okay? And his job is to be the cupbearer for the king, which means that his job is uh, to drink what the king was drinking uh, and see if it had any poison in it, right? 
Sounds like a, you know, a job. Um, but it also means that he had the unreserved trust of King Artaxerxes, which is interesting because he's not Persian. He's Jewish, and yet the king trusted him with his life. But he showed up to work this day and apparently had a sad disposition for everything that was going on. And he had never done that before the king, so King Artaxerxes, the emperor, noticed that he's sad of heart. Now, in, in that context, showing up and showing your emotions, what we would call bring your personal life into the workplace, wasn't great, okay? You could lose your livelihood, if not your life, for showing up and bringing that kind of stuff before the king. And yet, uh, kind of like Esther, he's there. Uh, he's showing his emotions, his sad disposition. So the king asks him, what's going on? He tells the king. He reports about the, uh, the sad state of his beloved city. And then the king says, what should I do? And he makes a request of the king to send him back so that he could restore the city. And it says that he was afraid to do so. He not only admitted the reality, not only acknowledged the truth, not only accepted responsibility, there came a time where he had to act bravely. He had to take an action. He had to make a request before the king. And he had to round up people around him who would go back and restore the city. Now, again, heavens probably aren't going to rend open. But I want you to, again, think about what his issue was. He wasn't committing sexual immorality. He wasn't going around, uh, you know, worshiping idols. He wasn't doing any of this. But he realized that a job needed to be done, and he and his people had just been sitting back and allowing things to stay the way they were. And he said, this is unacceptable. Something has to be done about it, and... I'm going to pray for God to send that person, right? Isn't that what we tend to do sometimes? Now, sometimes that's good. But sometimes God's calling you to be that person. God's calling you to stand up and to go out and to do what needs to be done in order to get the job done. It's not enough sometimes for us to sit back and pray and just feel sad about a situation. You have to act bravely. And I would say probably anything you do of value in your life many times will require courage and bravery. Just ask Joshua, be strong and of good courage as he went into the promised land. It would take strength and courage to go back and rebuild. So, what do you need to take ownership of this morning? What's God calling you to do? Don't wait for a sign from the heavens, okay? No, God's given you a sign and giving you his word. In Jesus standing as a resurrected Savior and saying, go ye therefore... That's our marching orders. Now, how are you going to use your gifts and your talents to accomplish that mission? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Aren't you so thankful that Jesus, as he was in heaven, and he looked down upon a world in darkness, he saw the reality, and he accepted the mission. He volunteered as a beloved son of God to come into this world and sacrifices life for our sins. It's what Jesus did for us. Why? Because he loves you. What's he calling you to do today? How, how is he calling you to respond to him? Gracious Father, I pray today that as we come to this time of response, 
It would look back over the years and be inspired by the example of so many men and women who they were, they really were nothing. They were wallowing around in darkness and despair. And then the light of your grace broke into their lives. The inbreaking of your kingdom. And they repented of their sins and they trusted in Jesus, but then they joined him on mission. And the world has never been the same. Thank you, Father. But help us to be inspired by their example today. Help us to respond to you with courage and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Uh, maybe this morning you need to come kneel at the altar and trust. Uh, maybe you need to come down and trust in Christ or follow through a believer's baptism just like what we saw earlier. Maybe you need to join our church, join us in our mission, partner with us to reach the world for Christ. Maybe you just need to come down kneel at the altar say, God, empower me. Help me to act bravely to do what I know you're calling me to do right now. Or perhaps you just need to come down and say, hey, we got dozens if not hundreds of kids coming in these doors this week. And God, I'm just crying out to you for their salvation. That they would know there's a God in heaven who loves them and send his son to die on the cross for their sins. Maybe you just want to pray for God's movement this week. Whatever the case is, pray that you'd respond in obedience right now as we sing. When I feel my-